And I think the biggest question this book makes me ask, my favorite one that I came away with after reading was, can man surprise God? Or perhaps if we look through an underground man's perspective, can man surprise rationality? We're all given a deck from the hand of rationality, where we end up, what circumstances we're born in, yes. the things we live with. Like, is it upon us to use our free will to expand beyond the circumstances that rationality deals with us? I think underground man would agree that we can. I think that reasoning is really important, but reason shouldn't be the only reason that we act. Yes. Think about Cordelia. Lear says to her, you have some cause to hate me. And she says, no, no cause. No, I don't. Which is an irrational statement because she does have cause. So mercy is irrational. Forgiveness is irrational. Love is irrational. Belief in God is irrational. And who wants to live in a world without any of those things? Hello again. In today's recording, I'll chat with Jacob and Felix about Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. Today's quote of the day is from The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. We'll be reading a portion from this long novel very shortly in the course. This is Father Zosima, and it comes from earlier in the novel. And he says this, Above all, don't lie to yourself. The man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to such a pass that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him and so loses all respect for himself and for others. And having no respect, he ceases to love, and in order to occupy and distract himself without love, he gives way to passions and coarse pleasures and sinks to bestiality and his vices, all from continual lying to other men and to himself. The man who lies to himself can be more easily offended than anyone. You know it is sometimes very pleasant to take offense, isn't it? A man may know that nobody has insulted him, but that he has invented the insult for himself, has lied and exaggerated to make it picturesque, has caught at a word and made a mountain out of a molehill. He knows that himself, yet he will be the first to take offense, and will revel in his resentment till he feels great pleasure in it, and so pass to genuine vindictiveness. For more about lying and pretended offense and the road to vindictiveness, let's go into that chat with me and Jacob and Felix about Notes from Underground. Hi, Jacob. Howdy, Professor. How are you? Good. And you? Good. And here's Felix. Hi, Felix. Hi, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. I think, and, and like I said, we are only reading the first part of this novella. The second part is interesting and slightly longer, and it certainly relates to the first part, but it's a kind of narrative, it's a story that kind of enacts the the more abstract and philosophical principles that he's putting forth in part one. And part one is just much more provocative, much more interesting, uh, and much more impactful. It's had a bigger impact on world culture, certainly, than part two. So that's why we're only focusing on part one. This is the first question I think we should ask ourselves. Can we trust this speaker? I'm asking this because he says several times, like, I was lying just now. You know, this is in part one. I was lying when I said just now that I was a spiteful official. And then at the very end, he says, honestly, I don't believe anything that I've written here. <laughs> so I guess I have a two-part question. 
can we believe him? And why why is Dostoevsky putting his believability in question? In some way, we can we can be we, we can trust or like we can believe in what he's saying because like the thing that he said is it makes some kind of sense. It, like yeah. it, it doesn't make some kind of sense, but when you think about it a little bit more and deeper, you 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 just like what is he talking about? He's like. <laughs> It also interests me when he's saying that he's lying, because when he's saying that he's lying, then is this a lie or is this not a yeah. lie? <laughs> what a, yeah, what a great... I think this is a, called the uh, Cretan liar paradox. All Cretans are liars, and so are they lying when they say they lie? It's a very good point, Felix. But also another good point that you make, so much of what he says sounds weird and crazy, but so much of it also sounds quite persuasive. So it might not be a matter of do we believe him, but simply are we persuaded? Maybe that's a more important and more relevant question. And there are many portions of this that do persuade me. Jacob, what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, was some brilliant comments, Felix. I uh, definitely agree with those. For me, when I looked at this question, when you sent it to us, I immediately went to the context just to delve a little bit into it. Historians have said that one of the reasons they think that Notes of the Underground was written as kind of a like an attack or a response to an earlier book called What is to be Done by another Russian author, Shurna Sishevsky, I think yes. is how you pronounce his name. Yes. The book is all about rational egoism. Basically, you act according to your own self-benefit in all instances. Yeah. So I think for me personally, I don't trust Underground Man. He's like the personification of a 1800s Reddit troll for me. <laughs> I think I don't trust him, but at the same time, I am persuaded, like you were saying. I think I'm persuaded because... He's the ultimate example of why rational egoism doesn't make any sense because people are going to do crazy stuff. They're not going to make sense. What they say is going to conflict with other things they've said. They're going to do things outside of uh, what brings them self-benefit like uh, Underground Man has. Rational egoism, as you define it, simply the philo philosophical hypothesis theory that humans act out of rational self-interest. Am I getting this right, Jacob? I mean, it's been a while. This is a, a method used to explain human behavior. We act in a way that it will benefit us we think is will rationally benefit us. Yeah. Dostoevsky, I think, thinks, no, we don't. We don't. And we'll, so we'll get into that. I love your Reddit troll comment. There's a reason why Reddit trolls are anonymous. And there's a reason why Underground Man doesn't give us a name. Because I think, um, well, what is that reason? What is his anonymity providing him? Because he, because he doesn't need to tell us who he really is. So basically, he can say whatever he wants. Yeah. So like he can just like say some random random stuff to attract people to listen to him, and at the end, just like yeah, I'm not taking any responsibility of it. If you if you trust it, then you trust it. If you you got tricked, then you got tricked. It's none of my business. And this is a two-edged sword. The fact that he could this anonymity lets him say whatever he wants. It lets him say stuff that's totally absurd, but it also lets him say stuff that I think he does believe, but maybe he wouldn't have the guts or courage to say if his mm -hmm. name was attached to it. It's a really important point too. Okay, so let's kind of walk through this. He says that consciousness is an illness or a disease. Um, let's put some text to this claim. To be too conscious is an illness, a real thoroughgoing illness. This is at the beginning of part two. A little bit down from this, he says, people do pride themselves on their diseases. Every sort of consciousness, in fact, is a disease. Is this one of the elements that you agree with, that you find persuasive? I'm going to attach a second question onto this, which is, what is consciousness for? You know, you, he says, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but he, he more or less makes the point that couldn't we all just be robots? You could imagine a human creature 
programmed to eat, sleep, procreate without this higher level of, of self-awareness. What is this higher level of self-awareness for? He thinks it's a disease. Maybe he's right. Maybe we believe him. If we don't believe him, what is this human attribute for? What is its purpose? Any thoughts? One line I think really kind of sums up how I feel about this is, uh, this is the top of page 24. He says, why suffering is the sole origin of consciousness. So you ask why we have the consciousness. I feel from underground man's perspective, we have consciousness in order to analyze suffering we go through. And then how does this turn into an illness? I do agree with him that I think consciousness in some form can be a very big illness. Yeah. If you start analyzing that quickly leads to like paralysis by analysis, overanalyzing things, we turn into like the chapter three description of the mouse instead of the man who is angry and yet can't act to fulfill his desires for revenge. It made me think of two other examples. One, Daisy Buchanan. I hope she'll be a fuel, a fool, a beautiful little fool. So he doesn't have to uh, go through the <laughs> suffering, the consciousness, the the analysis that she has to go through. Wait, this is a great Gatsby and, reference, right? Yeah, I guess. Yes, yes, yes. Very good. Uh, uh, one other one is Hamlet. This is the ultimate personification oh, of Hamlet. As he's sitting in the king's room and the king is praying, he's he's got the sword ready. He's behind the curtain, and yet he can't kill his he can't kill Claudius simply because he's analyzing it too much. Uh, so in that in, sense, I would say it's an illness. In fact, his the most famous piece of writing in English, to be or not to be, that is the question, explicitly names consciousness as a disease. He says, uh, thus conscience, and he means consciousness, this is how that word was used in the 16th century, thus consciousness doth make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution. So any resolve we have, any ability we have to decide things and choose things and to act, Resolution is sicklied or with the pale cast of thought. Thought turns us sick, yeah, and pale, and freezes action. So Hamlet, you're right, thought that thought was a disease. Felix, would you third this opinion? What would, what would you say? Well, I think like for consciousness, I, I still don't really have like a reset mindset of what consciousness is. Consciousness is like what makes us human being, I would say. Mm-hmm. And consciousness is like a self-awareness. And if you don't have consciousness, then if there's something wrong or something bad happened, we, we won't even realize it. And if we don't realize it, then how can we feel pain or like, feel sad of the thing, right? So I think like in this sense, because we have consciousness, that's why we feel sad for, for the wrong that we, have, we, we are treated or like, yeah, but yeah. It, it, um, this reminds me of what Keats says. I'm not going to get the quote exactly right. Uh, do, do you not see how necessary a world of pains and troubles is to school an intelligence and make it a soul? So there are other brains out in the world. You know, cows have brains, but they're, they're not totally self-conscious yet. And perhaps suffering, as you say, Jacob and Felix, um, suffering and consciousness are kind of interrelated and depend upon each other. Consciousness is, as you say, Felix, extremely hard to define. Think, what is it exactly? I think like one of the example, one of the like the well-known example of the church as a church member is like Adam and Eve. Yeah. Because before they eat the forbidden fruit, they don't even realize that they are, they were naked. And when they get their consciousness and they knew they were naked, then that's why they started to feel shame. So, but shame. I mean, is shame good? I mean, that's that's part of the underground man's question. Like. Maybe it would be better if we were cows and didn't feel shame. Should we envy animals who feel no shame? 
I think like this is one of the things that I don't really agree with it. I think like the emotion itself or like emotion or consciousness itself doesn't have good or bad in it. Okay. What makes it good or bad is how we deal with it. If we feel anger or like if we are angry, then how are we going to deal with the anger? Are we going to right. just let the anger control ourselves and just do tons of different crazy stuff? Then that will be bad. But right. if we just have to anger, but we are treating it with calm and what we should be doing, then that won't be a bad thing. Yeah. the underground. This is where the underground man goes next, I would say, how we react to suffering. He says that we can enjoy pain and we can enjoy, in his word, degradation. This is still in uh, chapter two of part one. The enjoyment was just from the too intense consciousness of one's own degradation. And then he says, a couple pages later, you can enjoy a toothache. Uh, there is enjoyment in a toothache. That's at the beginning of part four. There is enjoyment in the act of complaining about a toothache. This rings true to me. It sounds, it sounds at first counterintuitive. We think, no, toothaches aren't enjoyable. Just spend 30 more seconds thinking about that. And you think, he's right. This one was a tough one for me. The first place my mind went was catharsis. Okay. We go through, we go through like these suffering things. It allows us to like expel our emotions that kind of baggage, which is pleasurable. The other thing I think, or, or where I think Underground Man is trying to get at here is that suffering and pain is like necessarily attached to free will. An exercise of free will has to predate any form of suffering. Yeah. So when we suffer, we can suffer happily knowing that that yes. came about because of a choice we made. Yes. So this answers directly the question. <laughs> you said a couple of interesting things here. Jacob, how interesting is the very beginning of this novella? I am a sick man. I am a spiteful man. I am an unattractive man. I believe my liver is diseased. I don't consult a doctor for it and never have, though I have a respect for medicine and doctors. No, I refuse to consult a doctor from spite. What did, why would he not see? He, he trusts doctors. He trusts medicine. What is this spite? I think you've put your finger on it, Jacob. It's an act of pleasure to not consult a doctor from this because he gets to assert his freedom of choice. He doesn't want to be reduced to an equation, a mathematical equation, or what he calls a piano key or an organ stop. Human feels pain in his liver, human consults doctor. He doesn't want to be that predictable and that reducible to an equation. So he says, no, I'm going to act against my own self-interest just just to assert my free will. And this, the suffering that comes along with that will be worth it because I get to assert my free will. This catharsis thing is very interesting as well. We like crying in sad movies. We like feeling terrified in horror movies. It's very strange. Um, there, there might be another couple reasons why we enjoy or could enjoy a toothache or could enjoy whining about a toothache. But let's hear from Felix. What would you add to this? So for me... And I said in the beginning that like I don't like it depends on the situation if I trust this, this man or not. Yeah, I can totally understand like his feeling sometimes because sometimes I also feel the same way, especially when there is like something bad happen yeah. because of your poor choices. Then I just for me it it made me understand that the choice I made was wrong. It was totally wrong. So and it made me feel like a sense of improvement. Or like there's something more I can do, and the pain is just like a process, not a result. So I can keep on keep on moving forward. But at the same time, feeling the pain is still really enjoyable. 
Um, you, you're putting a way more optimistic and positive spin on it than the underground man, which is good. It's proof that, you know, you, you're not as, you know, as broken and resentful as he is. But um, I think there is something about pain that is that can be enjoyable. I mean, Jacob, you were in 201 when we read uh, the Iliad and Achilles holding on to his anger because, as he says, it became as sweet to him as honey. I got dumped uh, once. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, in a long after a long term relationship, and it was painful, and there was a period of time in which the pain became a kind of comfort. Is this feeling familiar to either of you? I mean, you don't have to get too personal, but I mean, that's one example. You can kind of enjoy feeling depressed. You can kind of be proud at how hurt you are, or it can feel like an excuse to not get up and do things, or it can some in some strange way make you feel weirdly alive, like a bruise that we keep pressing. You know, if you apply for a job you really want and you don't get it and you're depressed about it for a week, isn't there a part of you that doesn't want to snap out of it and wants to hold on to that sadness for as long as possible? Or is it just me, me and the underground um, man? I, yeah, like I kind of feel the same way sometimes. I think I think pain or like despair or like this depression will be enjoyable when the person who is feeling it feels that it, he or she deserves it. Yeah, I mean that and, could be one. That could be one reason why. Yeah, but for yeah. sure. And like I also have some. I also have a, at the time that I really, really, I was really broken, basically. Mm. And the 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 depression or despair or the pain or like the heartbreak made me made me know that I'm still alive. It's like it's it the pain becomes like evidence that I'm living. That is a very underground man-like thing to say. You know, he doesn't want his liver cured because it reminds him that he's not a piano key. He's not a mathematical equation. He's a human being. I mean, he talks about how we can take offense on purpose. This is one version of this. You go to chapter five of part one. He says, observe yourselves more carefully, gentlemen. Then you will understand that it is so. I invented adventures for myself and made up a life so as at least to live in some way. How many times it has happened to me? Well, for instance, to take offense simply on purpose for nothing. And one knows oneself, of course, that one is offended at nothing, that one is putting it on. But yet one brings oneself at last to the point of being really offended. You know, I see my kids do this all the time. One of them will steal something from the other. And at first, you can tell that the that person that kid is pretending to be upset. But the more they pretend, the more they believe it. And why are they pretending? Because it, you know, they think it will give them some advantage. They think it will that victim status will give them some kind of sympathy or some kind of benefit, or, or it could be this kind of primal underground desire to feel an emotion, even a negative emotion. It could be good. Yeah, I think he's right to argue that humans act knowingly against our own interests. I think he's right. Maybe it's in, it starts in chapter seven. He says, why in the first place, when in all these thousands of years has there been a time when man has acted only from his own interest? What is to be done with the millions of facts that bear witness that men consciously, that is fully understanding their real interests, have left them in the background and have rushed headlong on another path to meet peril and danger, compelled to this course by nobody and by nothing, but as it were simply disliking the beaten track and have obstinately, willfully, struck out another difficult, absurd way, seek, seeking it almost in the darkness. Is this persuasive to you? I would say yes. I, I think 
later on in chapter nine, he details a couple because free will is so different. There's so many ways that people choose to act yeah. in like a harmful way to themselves. Two that I really liked are the, he or the underground man lays out. One is uh, he, he talks about how man has a passionate love for destruction and chaos. Yes. It's like some people I would quote that uh, that Batman line. Some people just want to uh, watch the world burn. Yes. They're, they're motivated by that. But I think maybe a more common one. It's right after that destruction chaos part. He talks about how mankind, he says, like a chess player loves the process of the game, not the end of it. He goes on to detail that. I think that can be manifest in ways we choose suffering over happiness. As soon as I read that, my mind jumped to, just for a silly example, Michael Jordan best basketball player in the world, 1994, comes off an NBA championship and retires so he can go pursue baseball, winds up on the Chicago White Sox, never makes it past like a very low level minor league and is like one of the worst baseball players of all time. And yet has has chosen this form of suffering because he wants to, he, he just is addicted to that, wanting to be the next best thing. It could be, I mean, that's a very interesting example because the underground man has stuff stuff to say implicitly or explicitly about ambition as well. Michael Jordan wanting to be the next best thing and causing himself suffering. But I think also what you say about this Batman example, some people want to watch the world burn. I think the underground man's argument is that not just some people, but everyone, there is a part in every brain. In some brains, this part is bigger and in some brains it's smaller, but there's a part in every brain that Let's get to this, and then I'd love to hear Felix's opinion about this. So the underground man claims, this is what he claims. So there's this Crystal Palace, and this Crystal Palace was a real place, existed in London for a few years, and it was seen as this, I think it's something that in what is to be done is is hailed as this symbol for a utopia, kind of coming utopia, kind of paradise. Dostoevsky thinks that even if we could achieve this kind of utopia, even if the whole world was transformed into a Crystal Palace, it would be a kind of hell and we would all decide to smash it. So this is in chapter eight. He says, I don't know exactly where to tell you because I'm reading from a slightly different edition. I would say two thirds of the way through chapter eight. Well, (laughs) I'm about to read a lot. I feel, I feel a temptation coming on to read a lot. This is interesting though. He says this, uh, if you look at all, if you survey the history of mankind, what will you see? Is it a grand spectacle? Grand, if you like, and then he lists examples of grandness. Yes, we can achieve grandness. Grand architecture like the Colossus of Rhodes, etc., etc. It may be many-colored. It may be diverse. It may be have variety. It may be monotonous, fighting and fighting and fighting. The only, And then he says, the only thing one can't say is that it's rational. The very word sticks in one's throat. So to survey the history of humankind is to immediately be presented with a mountain of evidence that we are not rational. Our species is not rational. And then he says this, and indeed, this is the odd thing that is continually happening. There are continually turning up in life moral and rational persons, sages and lovers of humanity, who make it their object to live all their lives as morally and rationally as possible, to be, so to speak, a light to their neighbors simply in order to show them that it is possible to live morally and rationally in in this world. And yet we all know that those very people, sooner or later, have been false to themselves playing some queer trick, often a most unseemly one. Now I ask you, what can be expected of man since he is a being endowed with strange qualities? Shower upon him every earthly blessing. Drown him in a sea of happiness so that nothing but bubbles of bliss can be seen on the surface. Give him economic prosperity such that he should have nothing else to do but sleep, eat cakes, and busy himself with the continuation of his species 
And even then, out of sheer ingratitude, sheer spite, man would play you some nasty trick. He would even risk his cakes and would deliberately desire the most fatal rubbish, the most uneconomical absurdity, simply to introduce into all this positive good sense his fatal, fantastic element. He would smash the Crystal Palace to bits just because. Is this true? About Is this a true description of humankind? If it is, what are we supposed to do about this problem? Well, I do, I do agree that um, when there's like order or like if there's like some like organized stuff it will cause someone to to want to break it yes and for babies for like a society or like for like a human species stuff i simply think it's because we just want to say that we are free to act for ourselves and we don't want to be rude i don't know it's just like the personality of human being just sometimes pretty rebellious and we we are like i think it's one of the research that if we are told not to do something then we are we we are we are we are so tempted to do it absolutely if you if you don't tell a a kid don't do something that he probably won't do it but if you tell him not to do it then he will probably do it yes you've raised several good points we do it just because we have this rebellious aspect to our nature uh, we do it because maybe out of boredom. If there's too much order, if there's if there's if every if every problem has been solved, this is maybe bad. Maybe this is a kind of hell to live in a world in which every problem has been solved. And so, if we live suddenly in a world in which in which every problem has been solved, we will start creating problems just to feel like we have something to do. Mm-hmm. Maybe Jacob, what would you say? Yeah, I think that's definitely his critique of utopian idealism. To quote Felix on that one, yeah, there's just something natural in human beings that's going to want to rebel. Yeah. One thing, one of his favorite, or one of the lines I really like, this is the beginning of chapter 10. You believe in a palace of crystal that can never be destroyed, a palace of which one will not be able to put out one's tongue or make a long nose on the sly. And perhaps that is just why I'm afraid of this edifice. Yeah. His, his critique is that utopian thinking, the crystal palace leaves no room for free will, and thus it's subject to the negative effects of you know, the pigs eventually manifest themselves as the pigs. More people are, some people are more equal than others. And then everything crashes. Oh, very good. Yeah. Another great um, masterpiece reference, Animal Farm. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. It's like my son, just to flesh this problem out a little bit more. And then I'm going to ask you, what do we do about this problem? I mean, there are many versions of this problem. You've already, both of you have already started to put your fingers on it. We smash, we will, we would smash the crystal palace a out of rebellion because we've been told not to. And we, we often react, don't tell me what to do. So we would smash it out of rebellion, B, out of boredom, C, perhaps because we know that we need, we know that we are creatures who need problems to solve. We know that we are creatures who, I don't know a better way of phrasing it than that. My son is eight and he knows in his body, he wouldn't be able to articulate this rationally, but he knows in his body that he's living a life that is too comfortable. So he started to say things like, can we please go to a dangerous jungle? This is his dream. And I say, what do you mean dangerous? And he says, I want a jungle where all of the animals are poisonous and where the weather is dangerous. This is where he wants to go. And I say, why do you want to go there? And he says, I want to have a big adventure. And he's obsessed with this person, Bear Grylls. I don't know if you know who this person is, but this adventurer who, you know, lives in the jungle and like eats snakes and stuff. Um, 
humans were not made to live perfectly padded, perfectly ordered, perfectly regimented, perfectly catered to lives. You know, we're, we're partly because of COVID, but just partly because of the comfort level of American society. My wife and I have started ordering groceries to our house. They get delivered to us. We don't even have to do our own grocery shopping anymore. I mean, this is just absurd. So in a life this comfortable, and this, I mean, we're not rich. We're just, you know, living an, an average middle-class American life. In a, in a life that's comfortable, we feel the need for problems to solve. We feel the need for danger. We want brokenness so that we can fix it. Here's the question. If humans are always going to act irrationally because we are rebellious, because we are bored, because we like having problems, or to assert our free will out of spite, what are we supposed to do about this? One of the ongoing questions in this class is, how should we live? And it's based on this assumption that we can improve. It's based on this assumption that human beings can improve as individuals and that human beings can improve as societies. The underground man seems to believe that human beings cannot improve, that we will always, always, always be broken. And when when we're not broken, we'll break ourselves just to go back to that broken state. What are we supposed to do about this? Can we improve? And if we can't, what are we supposed to do? I do believe that human being is like is a species that can improve because we can learn from experiences and we we learn from observing others and what what has been happening in the society as well. But like, how are we going to improve? <laughs> it's a really it's a really difficult question to answer. <laughs> It, I mean, it's so difficult. It could be among the most difficult questions I've ever encountered. It, I think American life in 2021 is as close to the Crystal Palace as it has gotten. Is it perfect? It's not a Crystal Palace. It's not a utopia. There's many problems, of course. We've reached levels of comfort and uh, prosperity that have been un, undreamt of for more or less you know, all of human history. So progress is certainly possible, but I feel like it's, he has a point here. He has a point. We like getting in our own way. How improvable are we? Jacob, what do you think? How improvable are we? I think more than underground man would let on. And this is where I think, at least where I feel like we can start to distrust him a little bit. Uh-huh. In his argument, if we do look at the situation like through a rational perspective, then if men will always choose to watch the world burn, they're always going to choose to engage in acts of suffering. And yeah, of course, no progress is possible. But that's where I think his argument kind of turns its head on its on itself. If we do believe in free will, then even though we will still choose suffering, don't we also have the option to exercise our free will to choose the opposite of suffering, uh-huh. to choose benefits? So while we might still engage in suffering, and that's the scope of the suffering might shift as we make choices and exercise free will. At the other side, or like the other side of the coin, I think we also have the ability to use our free will to benefit us. Even if underground man tells us we can't, we still have the free will to say he's wrong. This leads me into the question of, uh, I'm yeah, I'm very conflicted on this issue that you that you have begun to introduce, Jacob. Free will. I wonder if the underground man believes in it. I don't know. That sounds like a leading question. He says two plus two is four, but maybe I do not want to believe that about myself. Maybe I do not want to believe that I am that predictable, that every part of my being is the product of causes that I don't have any control over, 
I don't choose my genetics. I don't choose my nurturing. I don't choose my upbringing. How much free will do I really have? Maybe all of the workings of my brain, all of my behavior, all of my actions are mathematizable. And maybe science will one day reach a place where human behavior and individual's behavior can be predicted with exact precision. I think he's a little bit scared that science will one day prove that free will is an illusion. In the face of that fear, he reacts by saying, okay, I'm going to believe that two plus two equals five. Two plus two equals five is, a, is a, he tells it, a pretty, a sometimes very charming thing too. I'm going to not go to the doctor and heal my liver because I don't want to fit like a cog into this machine. Yeah, Jacob, can we act in ways that are beneficial to others as well with this free will uh, without falling back into the trap that proves that we don't have free will? Does this make sense? I don't know if that makes any sense, but would acting altruistically or for the benefit of others, would how would this be an assertion of free will? Could it, could it be used as ammunition against the argument that we have it in the first place? I'm, I'm a biochemistry major, so like, I've heard like a saying that human being doesn't really have free will. We're just like a biological machine with like working with the hormones, yeah. stimulus, just in the body or DNAs, and we don't really, and we don't really have a choice to choose what we want, thing like that. So yes, it's it's like the science sometimes. Science sometimes like really rejecting the free will sometimes. Yes, I mean he t- this is his. Where is that? He says something more or less. Um, he says that there are facts. Sorry. Yeah, um, here you go. End of section three. For twice two is a law of mathematics. Just try refuting it. Upon my word, they will shout at you. It is no use protesting. It is a case of twice two makes four. Nature does not ask your permission. She has nothing to do with your wishes. And whether you like her laws or dislike them, you are bound to accept her as she is, and consequently all her conclusions. A wall, you see, is a wall, and so on. Merciful heavens, but what do I care for the laws of nature and arithmetic when for some reason I dislike these laws and the fact that twice two makes four? Of course, I cannot break through the wall by battering my head against it if I really do not have the strength to knock it down. But I am not going to be reconciled to it simply because it is a stone wall and I have not the strength. So if I can't contradict the biological laws that govern me, if I can't break through this wall of truth, I will flaunt it. I will go around it. I will act in my own against. I will act against my own self-interest to say, well, more or less, screw you all. You're not going to get me with your two plus two equals four. Two plus two equals five. I kind of sympathize with this. You know, I get it. I get that reaction. What is a better, more productive, more psychologically healthy way to react? I've got an answer. I'm trying excellent. to find it in the text real fast. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Just going off of the, the can two plus two equals five, is there any benefit into saying that? Or what's a healthier response like you were saying? Yeah. One paragraph that's very uncharacteristically underground man, and yet he still says it is. This is page 19. This is in section eight. Uh, yes, but here I come to stop, gentlemen. You must excuse me for being over philosophical. Allow me to indulge my fancy. You see, gentlemen, reason is an excellent thing. There's no disputing that, but reason is nothing. But reason satisfies only the rational side of man's nature, uh, which will is a manifestation of the whole life that is the whole human life, including reason and all the impulse. So one thing I can get not wanting to go to the doctor, I have a hard time with the two plus two equals five, just because it takes me down that 1984 road. And Indeed. like, if, we, if everyone starts saying that, then uh, we're in a lot of trouble. So I think we can argue even from underground man, man's perspective, 
there's still value in having like some baseline objective standards. For the sake of rationality, we know that the scientific processes and means and methods are effective when they're used in a naturalist sense. Like that's one of the tenets of science. You have to apply it within a naturalist setting. There's no room for the uh, supernatural, for things we can't measure, which is a weakness. But at the same time, if we're dealing with two and two, I mean, I'm fine. It's Winston in 1984 who says, uh, oh, what does he say? Freedom is the freedom to say that two plus two does equal four. So I'm willing, I'm willing to hop on that bandwagon. Orwell is clearly reading Dostoevsky. What a great um, way to track the lineage of these masterpieces through the years. Yes, excellent. Freedom is the freedom to also say two plus two equals four. Jacob, you mean that it is, it is an e- perhaps the most rebellious act of all is, in some instances, <laughs> to conform. Maybe that conform isn't the best word. To defer to scientific truths when they prove things about you that you don't like. It's a, a suffering we experience that's brought on by our own free will to conform to scientific means. So I would say, yeah. It's a kind of unhealthy reflex reaction. In a way, yeah, the underground man is, is acting just as predictably. He's kind of acting perhaps slightly too juvenilely, if that's a word, too scared of the implications here without sufficient maturity. He's predictably rejecting this and saying, I will assert my free will no matter what. It's kind of a teenager. What a teenager does is like, I'm not going to, you know, the, the billboards say don't text and drive. Screw that. I'm going to text and drive. No, perhaps the most, perhaps the more mature assertion of freedom is to say, I'm going to follow this rule of nature, this law of science, this societal advice because I understand it and agree. I will choose to agree. I love this I love this uh, question about the whole life. Let me re-highlight this moment that you read, Jacob. You see, gentlemen, reason is an excellent thing. There's no disputing that, but reason is nothing but reason and satisfies only the rational side of man's nature. We should be hearing King Lear here. Yeah, reason, not the need. There are, he says to Goneril and Regan, who, who say to him, you, what, what need you have of, of one night? You don't need one. No, there are moments in life when reason is an enemy or when maybe not when reason is an enemy, but when you need what, what the underground man calls a whole life to make decisions. Uh, reason satisfies only the rational side of man's nature while will is a manifestation of the whole life. I'm going to keep reading here. And although our life and this manifestation of it is often worthless, yet it is life and not simply extracting square roots. Here I, for instance, quite naturally want to live in order to satisfy all my capacities for life and not simply my capacity for reasoning. That is not simply one twentieth of my capacity for life. What He's not really naming these other nineteenths, but what are we other than rational creatures, would you say? What sides of ourselves is he talking about here? And why, and why are those sides of us important? I think for me, I made kind of just a little list in the margin as I was reading through some of the things I wrote down that lie outside of the rational perspective that can't really yeah. be explained in that manner. I've got faith and spirituality, our relationship with the divine. Yeah. I've got love and altruism definitely lies outside of the bounds of rational egoism and only focusing on our own self-interest. And then lastly, I also had suffering and chaos and destruction because we, we can't have free will without necessarily including those things. Excellent. That's a great start. What else are we other than logical? Because a computer is logical. 
but a computer is only, as the underground man would say, a 20th of what a human is. So what does a human have that is different from just mere logical computation that is as important as logical computation? I think it got back to like the concept of the free the free will that we just talked about, and like also like I think it's like also talk also bring back the idea of consciousness because like one of the things that makes them doesn't make sense the most is basically probably emotion, and like yes. probably like for emotion specifically when you. When you face when you face the same situation, you can feel different emotion and make you like have different reaction. And I think this is one of the one of the way that we can see we are not like actually rational at all. Yeah. So. Okay. You've both good. You've given us lots to talk about here in our, in our in our last few minutes. Faith. Let's start with a few items from Jacob's list. We are not just logical computation. We are also we also have this this spiritual side to ourselves faith or a belief in a higher sphere or a higher potential. This isn't rational. Spiritual experience is not describable, is not reducible to language. You can you can use metaphors, this burning, that's a metaphor, but it's not literal. It's just a metaphor. It, to feel like you are in the presence of the divine, we have these moments in our lives, don't we? They subvert logic. They are not logical. They defy logic and they're bot their whole bodily experiences. We experience the presence of the divine maybe more with our livers, shout out to the underground man, than we do with our brains. That's why most of the metaphors are neck down metaphors. Right? Jacob. I'm probably gonna get a little Sunday schooly here. So good, very good. Bear Keep with going. Me. I think probably my biggest how to live takeaway from the book was a connection I made between faith and rationality. Uh, I mentioned how, in my opinion, one of the cool things I, I like about this book is that we as the readers have the free will to say, oh, well, I disagree with Underground Man, and I think that uh, I have the potential to benefit mankind uh, with the accompanying suffering, but I can make that impact if I choose to do so. And I think the biggest question this book makes me ask, my favorite one that I came away with after reading was, can man surprise God? Or perhaps if we look through the Underground, underground Man's perspective, can man surprise rationality? We're all given a deck from the hand of rationality, where we end up, what circumstances we're born in, yes. the things we live with. But is it upon us to use our free will to expand beyond the circumstances that rationality deals with us? And I think underground man would agree that we can. Okay, excellent. I want to end on maybe the most provocative note of all. And you're right, Jacob, to, to warn everyone listening that to believe that 2 plus 2 equals 5 is extremely dangerous. So I want that warning shouted loud and clear. However, the reason we'll we'll, we'll get to the brothers Karamazov next in you know in a week or two. Uh, Ivan Karamazov lays out an extremely Dostoevsky is on record as describing his attempt in that book to lay out an irrefutable argument against the existence of God. I think he succeeds. But this isn't the point. God's existence is not up for rational debate. Ivan Karamazov says the suffering of one small child is enough to disprove the existence of God. And his brother, Alyosha, who is 
training to be a monk in a monastery has no rebuttal. There is no rebuttal. But this is not the arena. This is not a logical proposition. This is a matter of faith. You know, reason can sometimes be a dangerous way to think or live. I've often asked myself the question, what does it matter what I accomplish today or tomorrow or in 50 years if in 500,000 years we'll all be dead and the universe will be extinct and the Andromeda galaxy will crash into us? Well, I guess rationally, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, but it's not relevant to today. Today, my kids need food and clothes and they need to know that they're loved and I have papers to grade. Our day-by-day, minute-by-minute sensations of comfort and happiness and joy and meaning, none of that changes even if we convince ourselves rationally that in millions of years, this will all have faded into nothingness. But I just want to make the point that too much reason can sometimes be a dangerous thing, can lead to nihilism, can, like Hamlet says, stop productive and meaningful action. I'm reminded of Don Quixote, to dream the impossible dream, to charge at windmills, even if maybe you, part of you knows that they're not windmills. This is good. I think part of this is good. We need that part of our brain. We need a Don Quixote and we need a Sancho Panza, don't we? I think that reasoning is really important. Like, we like giving our action reasons. So it may seem like making sense to other people. But reason shouldn't be the only reason. It may yes, sound yes. like a little bit like weird, but reason shouldn't be the only reason that we act. Yes. Think about Cordelia. Uh, Lear says to her, uh, you have some cause to hate me. And she says, no, no cause. No, I don't. Which is an irrational statement because she does have cause. So mercy is irrational. Forgiveness is irrational. Love is irrational. Belief in God is irrational. And who wants to live in a world without any of those things? I don't. I like that a lot, Felix. I think just to pull it back to Don Quixote for a second. Yes. I I just asked myself, um, what would underground man think if he read Don Quixote? And I think he would get to the end. And while said, he would probably like first point out oh yeah, this man died and he felt his whole life was useless and warned nobody else to pursue these visions of, of uh, a quest of a knight errant. Yeah. And so I think from underground man, we know or we learn that we need to accept suffering like a part of a free will. We can choose to act outside of rationality and that might mean that the Crystal Palace comes crashing down around us. But because we've yes. acted with free will that has made us a, a success, I guess. I don't, that sounds kind of cliche, but. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, excellent. Wonderful. We'll have that be the last word. Thank you both for an excellent, excellent chat. You too. Bye. Thanks, Professor. Bye. Sticking with Russia and Russian literature, I'd like to read one of my favorite poems. This is by the Russian poet Alexander Pushkin, and it's called A Prophet, and it's translated by, ah shucks, me. Drinking the dregs of my despair, I dragged across a wilderness and met a six-winged seraph where two roads converted to a cross. Lightly as sleep he touched my eyes, glutting them on prophecies until insatiable They looked up like a fledgling eagle's, spooked, 
Without speaking, he filled my ears with the shudderings of spheres and sullen mumblings of heaven, the bursting of each bud and vine, the sudden thump of brooding wings, invisible reptilian seethings underwater. Then he seized my tongue, still writhing and diseased with guile, and with a blood-stained hand he severed it and sewed a snake's slick fork onto the root. He split open my chest, cut out my heart, then stooped to cauterize the black wound with live coal. God's voice called me as I woke on the sand, strewn like a corpse. Stand up, prophet. Speak, and I will fill your mouth with my unbending will. Hold my word's torch to every town, to every heart, and burn them down. Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground inaugurates a series of Russian authors and texts that we'll be reading as the course progresses. Next up will be a recording between me and a couple of you about a chunk of Dostoevsky's The Grand Inquisitor, which itself is an excerpt from his long novel The Brothers Karamazov. Which reading, like all the others, I hope that you will really enjoy. Enjoy.